Morning, Calvary. It's great to hear the Word of God read before it's preached on. Like, just let God speak before you give any commentary and let Him say what He wanted to say. And that's what we want to do as faithful followers of Christ, is let God's Word speak to us, which is why we open our Bibles every single weekend, and we open it to look at it for instructions, so that we then in turn follow it. That's our desires, to know it so that we can follow it. Have you ever said this to God? I'll do that later. We sang this morning, I'm going to follow you anywhere later. I will praise your name in good and bad, and I surrender all later. Later, because there's some things I want to do now today. I want to get married. I want to go to college. I want to have kids. I want to advance in my career. And it seems like the ways in which you're calling me to follow you are going to inhibit that. And so I will follow you just later. Today, we're in a text that doesn't guarantee a later. So we're in the book of Hebrews with these warning passages. There's about four of them that we're going to be looking at. This is the second one that we've come up to. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of this warning passage, and then last week, we looked at the encouragement, and then today, we're looking at the second half of this warning passage, because the author of Hebrews is writing to a community, those who have believed in Christ, or those who have gathered to hear about Christ, and their concern for this community of believers is that they're going to leave, walk away, abandon their faith. And so at times, the author gives sober warnings to his hearers. And he's been saying things this whole time. Don't drift away. Don't be deceived by sin's deceitfulness and harden your heart. Don't deafen your ear to the words that you've heard. And today, this warning is, don't be dull or sluggish in your response. Don't be dull or sluggish in following the Lord and surrendering your life. Don't keep saying, I'll do that later. About 15 years ago, I was on an international mission trip with a a group of believers. And I remember giving a morning devotional about following Jesus. And I could sense that it just wasn't landing with this group of people. And before the day began, I just really wanted to ask him a question. Hey, we're going to go do a lot of different stuff today. We're going to tell people about Jesus. We're going to work for Jesus. We're going to save the world for Jesus. Here's a question. If you could live your whole life for Jesus from now into eternity, following him and and what he desires from you, would you choose to do that? Or would you rather live any way you want and then on your deathbed, accept Jesus and go to heaven. I said, okay, if you'd rather be on your deathbed and accept Jesus, just get up, grab your Bible and move over to this side of the room. And if you'd rather follow Jesus all the days of your life, just stand up and move to this side of the room. Now we're talking to people who are on a mission trip. It should be easy, right? You'd think. Grab your Bibles. We're going to Hebrews chapter five. And we're going to start where we picked up last week in verse 11. Verse 11 continues this conversation that he began about Jesus being greater than the priesthood. 
greater than the Levitical priesthood of Aaron and his sons and their descendants. And how Jesus is greater than, brings a greater sacrifice. He has all these things he wants to share about Jesus being the greater priest because he comes from a different line than the line of Aaron or the, the Levites. He comes from the line of Melchizedek. And he wants to talk about Melchizedek, but he says here in verse 11 about this, about talking about the greatness of Christ from the line of Melchizedek. And I want to talk about Melchizedek. He wants to talk about Melchizedek. He's going to talk about Melchizedek for several chapters. You're wondering, who is Melchizedek? About this, I have much to say. And it's hard to explain. Like it's, it's challenging. Since you have become dull or sluggish in your hearing, you've been slow to hear the things that have already been shared. And I want to move on to Melchizedek and how Jesus is greater than the greatest priest in the Old Testament. But there's a problem. You're dull in your hearing. You're slow to hear, slow to follow. You're sluggish. For though by this time you ought to be teachers from what you know, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled or maybe unexperienced, like an infant. They're a dependent. They're not a contributor. And so they're unskilled in the word of righteousness or the word that leads to righteousness. They're unexperienced in that. But solid food is for the mature. Another word is, is perfected. Those who are being growing into perfection. Those who are mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. And chapter 6 opens up with this word, therefore. So what do we always ask when we run into a Therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? It's it's building on something. So because I want you to embrace the greatness of Christ and see Christ as greater and greater and greater in the midst of your sufferings and hardships, I want to talk to you about him being greater than Melchizedek and I want to get there, but you're sluggish and slow to believe the things I've already shared. I want you to leave infancy and grow to maturity, be perfected in Christ. And so therefore, we have to move on. So chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Let us leave something. In this text that was read today, there are three things that I want to look at. Something in your faith that you're leaving, something that we're vulnerable or in danger of losing, and then finally, how do you have lasting faith? So we're going to talk about leaving, losing, and lasting faith. And this first part is, I want you to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from the dead works of faith towards God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits. Now, when you think of the elementary teachings... You think about what's happening in Calvary Kids today. Are you thinking they're talking about those things? Washing of hands or washings and the laying of hands. Resurrection from the dead, eternal judgment, repentance of of dead works. Are those kind of the elementary principles that we teach in Kids Week every or in Calvary Kids every week? So what are the elementary principles here? What are we called to be leaving? 
Well, these principles aren't uniquely Christian. They also are Jewish. Remember, he's writing to a community of people who are coming out of Judaism because Christianity isn't something altogether new. Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so these marks here aren't simply Christian marks or the basic teachings of Christianity. These these are things that are taught in Judaism as well. And so these are the marks in which are actually given to the Levitical priesthood. Is that the Jews would have in their mind repentance from dead works? Absolutely. That's what I go to the temple to this priest for, is I repent to this priest. What's the laying on of hands? Is the priest laying on of hands of the sacrifice that he's going to offer on behalf of their sins? What are the washings he's talking about here? Ceremonial washings of the priesthood. Now, where might we build some credibility for that and not just think it's tips from Thomas? Well, he goes on in this argument to talk about this. And so flip just over to chapter 9, where he's talking about the priesthood. This is the conversation he wants to talk about, Jesus being the greater priest. And so go over to chapter 9 and start in verse 8. He's talking about the difference between earthly priests and King Jesus. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place, the place in the temple, the holy of holies, the presence of God, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way to the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect or, in other words, mature, the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food, drink, and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, when the Messiah will reform the first covenant and bring a new covenant in his blood. Flip over to chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifice that are sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect, mature, those who draw near to it. So what's he saying? The conversation I want to have with you is about how you move from the Levitical priesthood, this thing that happens all the time but can never take away your sins, and talk about what Christ has done to forgive all your sins, to make you perfect and righteous in his sacrifice. So leave this behind and cling to Christ. What they're clinging to is, as he describes later, the shadow of things. They're the early signs. And so when we go back to chapter 6 and he says, okay, we're going to leave the elementary things, oftentimes our mind thinks elementary is the, the basic, simple principles of life. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the basics simply. He's talking about the beginnings of elementary principles. Where do you begin? Where did God begin to reveal himself and how people are forgiven and how people are made right with him? It's through calling Abraham, building a covenant with Abraham through Moses, through the Levitical priests. Those are the elementary things. Here's the other key to that is when he says, let us leave. Let us leave them. He doesn't say, let's build on them. Okay, we already know these principles. Now let's build on this foundation. No, he says, let us leave. This word leave is to depart, to separate, to no longer hold on to. When New Testament authors are speaking about divorce, 
This is the word that they're choosing. And so what is it that we're to leave, separate from, let go of? Well, that is the old Levitical priestly codes. Why? Because Jesus, the one that is greater than, has come and fulfilled these things. Does that mean we just give up on the whole Old Testament? No! What are we doing? We're grasping onto what Christ has fulfilled about these things. And so we're laying hands on Jesus, not on our animal sacrifices. Our washing is not the ceremonial washings. It is the washing that comes in the blood of Christ. Now this is thick sledding, is it not? This is not your normal Sunday school message. And so I want to make sure we're all on the same page. These are attributes in which they have yet to leave. And so they stay in infancy because they have yet to grasp onto what Christ has done and fulfilled. Now then he goes on in verse four, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of this age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, some in this room might say, okay, that that may have been, the the first part of that was an audience of of Jews who had yet to believe in Christ. And the author's telling them, you have to receive Christ. Let go of what is old and hold on to what is fulfilled in Christ. But this, these markers sound far more like like Christian markers, those who have authentic faith in Christ. And perhaps from this text, someone might even teach that this is how you lose your salvation. That real, true, authentic believers can lose their salvation that they once had a profession in. Is that what this text is saying? Who is this audience we want to know? Are they believers or are they not yet believers being warned? Well, let's start about what we do know about this audience. We know that this audience is probably like any church, probably like this room right here. In this room right here, there are authentic, faithful believers who have surrendered their life to Christ. And in this room, there are those who have yet to surrender their life to Christ. It's just a mixed group, always. And so those who are reading this letter or hearing this letter read are going to be a mixed group like we are probably a mixed group today. What we also know about this group is that they have a lot of knowledge and understanding of their Old Testament and what Christ has done when he's been taught about his fulfillment in his works from his life, death, and resurrection. They're not ignorant of those things. This audience is not the audience in Athens in which Paul goes to, looks around and sees, wow, look at, they're like very spiritual. Look at all the gods that they have here. All of these idols and temples. And he turns around and says, I can see that you're very spiritual, but there's, there's no knowledge here of the true God. And so I'm going to teach you about the true God of the universe. This is not Athens, nor is this like the Ethiopian in which Philip finds reading his scriptures but has no understanding. And Philip comes up to him and says, I can see that you're interested in these things, but you don't understand them. And so let me sit with you and I will teach you what you're reading. No, this group of people are well experienced. Look at these attributes right here. Back in chapter six, they have tasted, they have shared, they have seen, 
They are quite experienced in all of these things. And so all we can say about them for certain is that they are not ignorant of these truths of Christ. They're not. And I would say that that's probably true of everyone in this room. Wherever you're at with Christ, I would assume that there's no ignorance in this room of who Jesus says that he is and what he calls us to do. Now, these same attributes here, talking about having been enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? It's probably not the Holy Spirit because he goes on to talk about the, being shared in the Holy Spirit. It's probably the gift of revelation. Perhaps it's giftings that come down from heaven. Then he has to share in the Holy Spirit. And you have tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come. You've seen God move in your life. Are these true of believers? Yeah, I would say yes, absolutely, right? For the believer, these are absolutely true. Can they also be true for unbelievers? What do you think? I want to say yes too. It can be true of an unbeliever who has connected themselves to a believing community and is the beneficiary of experiencing other people's authentic, true faith. In fact, I think these are the same, similar attributes that he's already warned them about back in chapter two of not drifting away from and therefore never having salvation. So go back to chapter two with me. You guys still with me? Yeah, it's no joke today, huh? Man, i to work hard for you guys this week. Chapter two, verse one. Remember he said, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. This comes on the heels of him saying that Jesus is greater than the angels. Angels brought the first covenant. The son of God, the son of God has brought the new covenant. Let us not drift away from what we have now heard from the son of God. For if since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect? That means we don't turn into, we reject. We neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord and is attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So I think they're in the same, this is the same category. You have tasted, you have seen, you have shared, you have experienced these things, and unless you grab onto Christ, you're in danger of missing salvation. If we were to teach this text as though an authentic, Bible-believing Christian can lose their salvation, that would go against the teachings of Jesus Christ. That would go against the rich theology of the, the perseverance of the saints throughout the New Testament. It would go against the teachings of Christ. Think about what Jesus said about those who followed him and then for a season turned away and then returned. Jesus told a story of the prodigal son. So there was a son in the family and then turned away from the father for a season. But then in repentance came and returned to his father and sought after forgiveness and it was given to him. It would, it would go against what Jesus talked about with Peter. Peter, you're in the, the 12, man. And you've seen all these things. You've tasted these things. You've shared in these things. And you are going to deny me three times tonight. 
But after you return, Jesus says, he knows there's an opportunity to return. And Peter returns. And what does Jesus do? He restores him and commissions him with work to do. This would go against the, the specific teaching what Jesus says that he is the good shepherd in John chapter 10. Look at John chapter 10 if you want. Verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will be able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So what is the author of Hebrews getting at? I think he's getting after those who are in the community who are still living towards the old temple priests and codes and have yet to leave those things behind and embrace Christ. Those who have been part of a community and seen God's wonders and his signs and his powers and have been enlightened in some way to see and know the message of truth and yet have not surrendered their life fully to Christ. And the danger they put themselves in as they continue to belong to this community and say, later, later, I'll do that later. The danger they're being warned of is an opportunity for repentance is lost. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean if they seek out repentance, God will not give it to them? I don't think so. Picture it like this. Salvation is a doorway. And every door has kind of two sides to it. On the door, it says enter. The other side says exit. One says push. The other side says pull. When we come to the doorway of salvation, above at the entrance, it says repentance. All those who come to me in repentance to turn away from themselves and their life and cling fast to Jesus, to ask for forgiveness of their sins and believe on the Lord through repentance can come in. And on the other side of the door, as the Lord welcomes you, what he's bestowing on you is forgiveness. So our side says repentance, his side says forgiveness, and he welcomes these penitent sinners in. Which side of the door is in danger of being closed? Is it God's side? Is that someone would wander from the faith, maybe they grew up in the church and then wander off in college, maybe into young adulthood, maybe into the marriage, and they come back and say, we have got to get my family back at church. Maybe that's where you're at today, why you're here. I get the family back to the church. And is this text teaching that God stiff arms you and says, no, I will not forgive you. Not at all. What this text is teaching is that the door that says repentance, that's, that's our access point, can be closed so that you would never seek it out. What he's, what he's warning against is those who are around the Christian community. And I would say if you're young in the Christian community, you just want to like perk up right now. To be around the Christian community is a beautiful thing. To be part of a living faith is awesome. Not to be taken granted. And to be around it for a long season of time, but yet never surrender your own life to Christ, leaves you in a dangerous, vulnerable place. That you might wander and walk away, as he's already warned, don't drift away, don't be deceived by sin, don't deafen your ear, and you get to a place where God is saying to you, come to me, come to me, come to me, and your heart says, never, 
I've given up on that old religion. I've given up on that Jesus. And if you give up on that Jesus, there's nothing left for you. You can't crucify Christ again. That's what he's saying. And so we can get ourselves to a place when we keep saying, later, God, I'll give my life to you. Later, God, I'll live for you. Later, God, I'll follow you. But the condition of our heart then gets to a place where we just never will. We'll just never seek out his repentance or his forgiveness through repentance. We'll just never do that because of the condition of our own heart. Now, he gives an agricultural example to kind of color in what he's just taught. So look at verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it was or it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. I think this is the agricultural example, similar to what Jesus had taught about the word of God, word of God going out and finding soils. Where he's saying, okay, look at this community. You're in this community and the goodness, the enlightenment, the revelations, the powers of God sharing in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's like rain, man. That's rain. It's just coming down on your life. And it reaches all the soils. But on some soils, this is those who have real faith in Christ, who have surrendered their life to Christ. It produces a crop. It finds root. It produces fruit. And then there are others that are getting the same rain, getting the same rain. But because they fail to receive Christ. It's like thorns and thistles. And their end is destruction. That's sobering, isn't it? This is sobering for us in the room. This isn't to people who are outside the church right now. They're not hearing this message. They're not getting rain on their life. You're coming to church every week getting rain on your life, just gospel on your life, God's word on your life. And is it taking up root and producing fruit? Or is your life just thorns and thistles because you love being part of a believing community but have yet to surrender your life to the Lord of this community? That's the sober warning here. Is leave, if you mean, in our contemporary sense, be like, leave anything you're holding on to for the forgiveness of your sins and cling to Christ. Don't be part of a, of a community where it just rains the enlightenment, the goodness, the grace of Christ always, but never make a, a decision for yourself. Because you can get to a place where your heart will never let you repent because you've rejected this message long ago. But then he turns to the believers in the community, I think. So look at verse 9. It says, though we speak in this way, like we're, this is sober, this is challenging, though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, yet in your case, I'm thinking of somebody different, yet in your case, beloved, that's a title for believers, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Better things that just don't end in thorns and thistles and being burned up. What are the better things? Things that belong to salvation. So I'm going to talk to you, beloved, who belong to salvation. I'm going to talk to you about how do you have lasting faith? Because life, life is really hard sometimes. And if your faith's like my faith, it goes up and down and all around. And at times I've walked away from the Lord, it feels like. And I've come back to the Lord. So how do we have lasting faith for the believer? For God is not unjust as to overlook your works and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints as you still do. So one thing, that they're still serving the saints. 
That's actually a mark of discipleship. Jesus says, the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. That's the fruitfulness that he just pointed out. So rain has come down and on your life, God has witnessed how you love the fellow saints, even those you don't even agree with. You're loving them. And I've seen how you've loved them in the past. And I see how you're loving them in the present. And I want to just, just encourage you and inspire you, the author saying, to continue to love them till the end. Because true faith is persevering faith. Real authentic faith is always persevering faith. As evangelicals, we put so much emphasis on a decision we made way, 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 way past at like a, a youth retreat or a music conference. And that was the date we marked it and we said, we won't care how we live since that date is in my calendar. And this is saying, hey, God bless that date. Amen. How about some dates in between? And how about dates at the end where you persevered till the end? And so as an example, he's going to give us Abraham. So look at verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish. Here's that same word. So that you would not be sluggish, that you would not be hard of hearing, dull of hearing, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And so he's going to turn to Abraham and say, I know it's hard. I know it's challenging. I know there are seasons of despair. And so let me tell you about a man named Abraham who lived in the same hardships that you live in. And his faith went up and down and all around. But the attributes of Abraham that we need to have to be imitators to the end is right here, faith and patience. We need to have faith, which is just trust. We need to trust and be patient. This is slow work over time. This is cultivating work. It's botanical growth. Your faith is organic. It's not manufactured. It's not American. God doesn't just drop off a completed, mature, perfected faith with an Amazon drone at your house. It doesn't work that way. Faith is cultivated. It is nourished. It is watered. That's what we're called to do. And so the two attributes here in the very beginning before he just opens about Abraham next week is this, trust God. If you don't see where he is right now, you just hold on by faith and trust God and be patient. Be patient. It's faith over time. It's beholding Jesus and we're transformed into his likeness. And so I guess this would be just my question for you today is where in your life do you feel, do you, do you sense a sluggish, dull response to what God's calling you to do? First, if it's to come to him for the first time, just respond. All you have is today. The, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us, as long as the promise of entering his rest still stands today, you can make that decision today. For anyone who has loved ones or family members that are in a season of wandering, there's great hope for them, friends. There's great hope that I have because there's still the promise of entering his rest today. But that's today. That's not, that's not tomorrow or the next day. It's for you today, how will you respond? Where do you sense God calling you or leading you that you say, I'll do that later. I'll do that later. I told you about the story at the very beginning of being on this mission trip. What was overwhelming was that everyone but one person went to the side of, I'll live my life any way I want. I'll just accept Jesus on my deathbed. 
There's no guarantee of that. And knowing many of them today, I recognize they're in a season where their heart is so hard that they're unwilling to even entertain the idea of coming to Christ. Now, that's not final, but that's the danger of losing the opportunity to come to him because of the hardness of our own heart. May it not be true for you, friend. May it not be true for you. And so what are we implored to do? Don't be deaf, don't be dull, don't be sluggish. What have you heard God say today? Embrace Christ, embrace Christ today. Let's pray. Father, there is so much emotion in my own life when I think about these sorts of texts. It's to recognize who you really are and to leave the things behind that aren't of you. After you've fulfilled things, Lord, we want to we cling and hold fast to what is fulfilled. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that has experienced um, the believing community and have been enlightened, have tasted and shared, but have yet to surrender their life to Jesus. I pray they would do it today, as long as it's called today and the promise of forgiveness still stands. May they come to you. And Father, I do pray for us who are in seasons of hardship right now. I pray for faith, new faith, for trust in you. I pray for patience, to be patient even with themselves, knowing that you are bringing them along. You're bringing them along. And there's seasons of planting and there's seasons of weeding and there's seasons of nourishment and, and you're cultivating a life, Lord, that doesn't happen overnight. And so may we be faithful just to continue to present ourselves before you and ask that if you will, continue to form us in the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we trust our life to you. Amen.